Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have a guest returning for the third time. We have Mark D. White. He's professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at the College of Staten Island, CUNY, where he teaches courses in philosophy, economics, and law, and is also a member of the economics faculty at the Graduate Center of CUNY. He's the author of A Philosopher Reads Marvel Comics' Thor, A Philosopher Reads Marvel Comics' Civil War, the, Vir the Virtues of Captain America, and Batman and Ethics. And his newest book, available now, is called A Philosopher Reads Marvel Comics' Daredevil, From the Beginning to Born Again. Mark, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's great to be back, guys. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And so as we usually do, here's a passage from Mark's book. Mark wrote, Matthew Murdoch is famously a man of contrast. Mm -hmm. he, was a, he was an only child raised in poverty and growing up to become a successful lawyer, largely due to a single father, a, bo a boxer and part-time mob enforcer who pushed his son to study rather than fight. Matt was blinded by a freak accident that also heightened his other senses, granting him a range and depth of perception that sighted people can only dream of. He uses these senses together with fighting skills acquired in violation of his father's wishes to fight crime as the costumed vigilante daredevil and in the process regularly violates laws he has sworn to uphold as a member of the bar. Beneath the surface, we discover even more fascinating conflicts. He is perpetually unsettled about who he is or who he should be. Matt Murdock or daredevil, man or hero, lawyer or vigilante. He is obsessively concerned with whether he plays a, whether he makes a positive contribution as daredevil or does quote unquote good for the world. And assuming he does, he questions whether that good is his true motivation for doing it. He places a high value on rules, but repeatedly finds himself in the position of breaking them. And even when he can justify doing this, he worries about the justification itself and what it, mean, and what it means that he had to find a justification at all. <laughs> Exhausting. Most superheroes struggle from time to time with who they are and what they're doing, but none as unrelentingly as Daredevil. And as soon as he comes to some resolution, something inevitably happens to make him doubt himself once again. All of these conflicts help to create one of the most dramatic characters in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. So I love that, man. He's a philosopher. He's essentially doing, and I would argue even somewhat of a psychotherapist too, which I'll get into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But he is a philosopher because he's constantly wondering. And I think this is where we often fall into the trap of, uh, in terms of ethical thinking, we fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, there's excuses for everything, right? It's like, I can do this, but there has to be a good reason who gets to decide that good reason, right? So can we talk a little bit about some of the philosophical aspects of his thinking and why it's important, first of all, A, for him to be a good person, and then also B, why doesn't he think the law can just do it on its own? Why do we need him as a vigilante? Why does he Why does he feel it's important to be a good person? Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's just the way his father raised him. I mean, his father was um, in in his own mind an underachiever. You know, he never did well in school. He became a boxer because that was basically the only thing he was good at. And uh, using his fists and being a tough guy was also good for for serving uh, the the mob, the the criminals that he uh, you know beat up people to get their to collect their money. You know, typically that we are familiar with. And he, I think, he felt a certain sense of shame for this that that's all he made of his life, especially the the criminal side of his life. So he wanted Matt to be better. As, as you know, most parents do. They want their kids, you know, they, they learn from their own mistakes. They want their kids to do better than them. And since uh, Matt's father, Jack, thought he had failed in certain aspects of his life, he wanted to make sure Matt didn't. So he pressed Matt to study hard, not fight, uh, not even play very much with his friends, just buckle down and hopefully be better in that aspect of his life than his father was. 
Hmm. And his father also, you know, being a, a, a you, it, I always read him as being a generally ethical guy, I, I, you know, aside from his kind of criminal sideline, which he was never comfortable with. Uh, and in fact, you know, the, as the classic origin goes, the last night of his life, he was in a, a fight that he was told by his bosses to throw to serve their gambling ends. But then he realized Matt was in the audience cheering for him. And he says, you know, I can't throw the fight. I can't show my son. This is how you do. You know, you have to do what's right. I have to fight fair mm -hmm. according to the rules. And then he so he wins the fight, but gets killed by his boss afterwards. So and and also, you know, we find out later, you know, Matt's mother is absent from the first many years of stories, and it's implied that she's that she's gone, that she's dead. But actually, it comes out later that she just left the family when Matt was very young, and we don't find that out why for for decades later. But she's actually a nun in a church in New York City that when Matt gets injured, he ends up being taken to that church to recover and is cared for by that nun that then using his senses, he starts to realize, you know, when he hears her voice, when he, you know, other clues that he picks up on that that's actually his mother. And even that they teased out in the comics for many years, whether that was or was not his mother. Mm. Which is and so a great I, you know, way. You can say that, you know, even even though she didn't spend much time in his life, you know, maybe the fact that she was drawn to religious orders after she left the family, that, she, you know, she instilled some sense of that, that burgeoning ethics in him also when he was small. Yeah, it's actually a really good storytelling. I'm not going to, uh, I, I don't know if anybody knows this about me, anyone in the audience, but I'm here to the Marvel. <laughs> here to the Daredevil. I'm the daredevil. Actually, you know what's funny? Okay, actually, I was going to say something different. But I, I was going to say this to you before we started the podcast. But I was like, I need to save this for the podcast. Are you? Because you have a background in economics and law. You decided to, you write a lot of Marvel-related books, right? And I don't know. I was thinking, like, are you secretly, maybe, are you secretly daredevil? <laughs> well, not only, it's not a secret anymore. Jeez. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. There we go. Everyone yeah, knows no. now. Daredevil had to have been a philosopher. I can stop. I, I think so. Him. But one one thing I I love about the the book is that uh, you actually go into a lot of different uh, philosophical underpinnings in, in regards to um, in relation rather to uh, Daredevil's character. Like I, I I wrote it down. I actually have a bunch of notes. But uh, so like the dichotomy of uh, justice and, and uh, law, identity and personal ethics, virtue ethics responsibility and power, existentialism and self-reflection, like his own uh, trying to live a normal life and also mm -hmm. balance that with his life as a, as a, uh, as a hero. Right. And then also getting into uh, Kantian ethics, right? Like uh, his, like on one level um, he has, uh, it feels like he, ha there's like a duty that he has to be uh, a hero. Right. But the thing is, um, the, the duty that he feels in moral intentions, uh, it, it actually ends up complicating his life because there are things he would do where he had, like, for example, you bring up in the book, the trolley problem, or, mm -hmm. or rather uh, his life in relation to that. It's like sometimes he has to pick uh, one of uh, maybe a lesser evil or um, 
like no matter what choice he makes, somebody ends up getting hurt. Yeah, right. And then it, right. that conflict, it, it's very interesting to see that. Oh, be- can I piggyback yeah, off please, of that? Please. Oh, okay. So I want to actually now go back to one of the one of the three original questions. So if that's the case, right? If sort of all of these decisions, especially ethical ones, they have these trade-offs. Why is it that he thinks that justice or the law isn't enough? Why does he think he thinks he has to be a vigilante? And again, why are there even justifications for uh let's say uh, skirting the law in some sort of way? Why is that even necessary in this world? Okay, and that, that that's one of the, the core conflicts, is because I, I think I start out the book talking about how how Matt Murdoch has uh, a, a almost preternatural devotion to rules. You know, he thinks rules because I mean, he, he, he saw his dad and there's a, there's a pivotal scene where his dad loses control and hits him and immediately apologizes and starts crying. I didn't mean to do this, Matt. I'm sorry, Matt. And, but you know, the, the story goes that at that point, Matt realized how important rules are to, to restrain us because we're all imperfect this is also sort of his his Catholic upbringing that would only be emphasized later in the comics, already showing itself early on. That you know we're all we're all flawed, we're all fallen, we're all imperfect, and we need rules to help keep us in check. And even though he thought his dad is generally a very upstanding person, even he lost control, and he needed rules to keep them in check. So that's why, according to the story, he becomes an attorney to help enforce the rules of society. But he also knows that those rules themselves are imperfect the law is imperfect the law is is you know um sorry the the law is has been developed over the centuries by people you know for good reason for bad reason for principled reasons for policy reasons for personal reasons for manipulative reasons the law you know i i, I teach this this paper by oliver wendell holmes the the famous supreme court justice called the path of the law where he talks about how you know in law schools they teach that the law has a certain structure it's private and public law and tort and property and contract and blah 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 mm-hmm. and he says you know we have to remember that the law wasn't handed down to us like the 10 commandments and you know it, it was given the structure we in other words human beings have come to you know the problem of 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 regulating behavior and develop these laws in a very haphazard, chaotic way. And only later do we try to impose some sort of structure or organization to it. Mm. And Matt realizes that. Matt realizes that even though rules can generally do good, there are cases in which they don't. Mm. Okay, you know, criminals you know escape conviction through a technicality a technicality that's generally motivated for good reasons to protect civil rights but on occasion it will let you know a guilty person go and so he considers the other side of himself the daredevil side as pursuing a broader more general sense of justice that the law is only a an imperfect human approximation of Mm. So in other words, even in the most ideal case where we consider all lawmakers to be to have this this idea of justice when they're forming these laws, writing laws, passing judicial decisions, whatever, even if they tried to do that perfectly, they couldn't. You, mm-hmm. you can't design a perfect legal system. And and you know, even though Matt, you know, um believes in the law and tries to do most of his good works through the law he realizes that it has limits you know the law is an like i said an imperfect approximation of justice so as daredevil he kind of handles the stuff that falls through the cracks mm-hmm. right and even characters like uh 
I'll just use Kingpin as an example, right? Uh, has evaded the law uh, throughout mm -hmm. most of the series. Even if somebody were to testify around uh, against him, uh, he would have them killed, right? right? So this way they aren't able to, and therefore, you know, uh, obstructing that um, process. Uh, it does make sense that Daredevil, um, you know, goes for uh, acts in order to, you know, get in between the cracks, as you say, right? In order to deal with the villains that the law can't actually get to. The thing is, though, that um, it's hard to see with uh, Matt's character, with Daredevil's character, rather. Uh, the thing is that he, um, a lot of things that he does as Daredevil, it's hard to see whether, like, sometimes he's doing th actions out of duty or whether it's just personal uh, motivations, right? Like, sometimes mm -hmm. you look at his character, it looks like a lot of a lot of his actions are are fueled by um maybe anger sometimes revenge um like um uh like electra for example the character electra uh who was murdered by uh bullseye right like um i mean when he went when he went after bullseye if i by the way i don't remember this uh clearly but i believe um if I'm not mistaken, did Daredevil kill Bullseye or that just he ended up dying somehow, but it wasn't Daredevil's fault? It it was left very vague, you yeah. know, in the original comics. I think that was brilliantly done by the by, you know, Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen, who were the, the writer and pencil inker of that book in that. You know, he, he's fighting, if I remember this correctly, he's fighting Bullseye kind of balanced on a clothesline and Bullseye falls off and he tries to catch him. But then Bullseye takes the 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 sword, the sigh that he killed Electra with and is, is poised to stab Daredevil in the hand. Mm. And then Daredevil drops him. But we don't know whether he dropped him because Bullseye stabbed him in the hand or whether he dropped him to save being stabbed in the hand, or whether he just dropped him mm. and used the sigh, the impending stabbing as an excuse. Mm. And so that was left completely vague. And I thought that was brilliant because, you know, we will never know, you know, and Matt may never know because we, we, we rarely know the true motivations for why we do things. There's so many things going on in our head that, you know, it's, and it gets back to your your point, Alan, is that, you know, so many of the things, you know, just in general that Daredevil does, it could be done as in a pursuit of justice. It could be done, you know, to to get a bad guy, you know, for personal reasons. It could be done because he enjoys it. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that Daredevil is one of the few superheroes that actually enjoys what he does, mm -hmm. that this is funny, gets a kick out of it. And he then being Matt Murdock, being the 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 obsessively reflective person that he is he worries if that's the real reason he does it if he's not doing it for the sake of duty and justice but if he's doing it simply because it's fun yeah and that causes a huge tension uh inside mm -hmm. himself right because like ideally he thinks of himself as you know doing this out of uh like just for uh, purely for justice right like he has right. a certain code um, and he thinks he's doing things that are, you know, uh, for the right reasons. The thing is that um, the times that he questions himself, it kind of gets into like, uh, you know, he starts to question like his own uh, ethics in a way. I mean, there's even times uh, in the story where he even considers not even being daredevil anymore, right? Because oh, wow. yeah, 
yeah, it leads to people uh, dying. Like, um, uh, I mean, you could argue, I mean, it's not really his fault, but you could argue that what happened with one of his love interests, uh, Heather Glenn. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, that, I mean, he had, uh, he had a great relationship with her, but the thing is that his um, dealings with her father, who was uh, in the mob, um, yeah, it led to uh, her father's death which then led to her uh, becoming an alcoholic and then also, and then committing suicide, which left Matt uh, very, very depressed. Right? right. And then also um, making him think like, wow, like, is it, is it worth being um, this person who uh, might be doing more harm than good? You know, uh, at least that's like one of the phases that he goes through. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And even just thinking about it um, in terms of, let's say, long term, let's say long. Yeah, let's say a long term perspective. So then, I mean, again, when we're thinking about ethical questions, right, and we're often saying, well, you know, society at large gets to decide what is and isn't right. I mean, that's why we do have a judicial system and a criminal system. So why is it that in his mind, he thinks, OK, I'm not going to I'm going to be the one to not fuck this up. Like they're the ones making the mistakes and I'm going to be the one to correct it. Like, where does that come into play? Why does he think that he should have that kind of power? That, that's a great question. I think that's one of the questions that, you know, there's there's a passage I quote in the book where he, he actually complains to himself, you know, one of his internal monologues or soliloquies, where he says, you know, why do I have to be the one to to be the the the, the, the master of right and wrong? Why do mm -hmm. I always have to be the, the person to sort these things out? And I mean, I, I just speculate, but it may be his, you know, his training in the law hmm. which which you know is it's saying as being trained as a as a moral philosopher you have you 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 we flatter ourselves i guess to, to think we have a, a better bird's eye view of of right and wrong or good and, or bad than the average person has yes simply because oh thank you <laughs> simply because we, we 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 spend a lot of time thinking about this and reading and writing and and but you know, so that may be why, or the fact, you know, another source of his, his, his sense of, you know, he, like most heroes, he has an outsized, oversized sense of responsibility. Like, like the story that Alan was talking about, you know, Heather, her father, Heather's own, you know, taking her life. And he feels responsible for all of this, even though there are a lot of factors and he played a, 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 at most an incidental view. And he, he feels he, he takes on everything again because of this this underlying idea that he's responsible for it all hmm. and part of this comes from i think the the accident that gave him his powers you know a part of him believes that this was divine uh intervention mm -hmm. and that god gave him these abilities and gave them these abilities abilities for a reason you know i, I or you can keep just fall back on the spider-man thing that with great power comes great responsibility and he was he for whatever reason he was given these abilities, he has to use them. You know, like right. every hero of the Fantastic Four gets hit by comet cosmic rays, we have to use our abilities to help people. Hmm. And um so I I would you know, the, the the question of why Matt thinks he's responsible for this is is an even deeper issue that I I don't really have the complete answer for.
Well, I do. Have, I want to ask about a perspective and uh, to play okay. a daredevil's advocate. <laughs> that one, I, I had to <laughs> drop that one in somewhere. <laughs> so what, right. do you think it's at least possible that he had an outsized ego? Because, OK, let's say he does have these abilities. Fine. I'll grant him that. But it's like also, I mean, there's a whole society around you creating these laws, right? Why not work within or try to work within the system unless he thought the system was corrupt, which I mean, you do tend to get this with narcissistic personalities where you think, you know, the institutions are corrupt. I'm the one who knows what's good okay one thing though oh you're also playing daredevil's advocate no 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 and <laughs> and the actual okay but there are clear illustrations of real corruption going on around him mm. uh even as as a lawyer he's just seeing people uh get off on like get off of uh being like uh, uh being made guilty for crimes mm -hmm. uh he sees so much corruption that uh, it, it's just apparent, right? It's not like just some his imagining. Oh, so it is right? a problem. It's a systemic issue, then. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and okay, so I guess you could argue, oh, well, then shouldn't he get in somewhere and then try to change the system? I suppose. I mean, that would be cool. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mark, back to your point, it's uh, again, he has this great power, right? And again, just like Spider Man. With great power comes great responsibility. He sees that these people are falling through the cracks, people who are not uh, actually uh, facing true justice. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands. Now, is that right? Uh, that's the question. Yeah. That's the question. Wait, yeah. So, Mark, so then how does he deal with these internal justifications, right? So, as philosophers, you, I'm, I know, would agree. I'm assuming uh, you would say, okay, the way we philosophize is we philosophize together. It's not just me sitting in my armchair and writing and saying I know what's good and what's bad. We do this together. But he, on the other hand, is saying, no, no, I'm going to figure out what's right and wrong. So, why doesn't he again create these just or try to create these justifications with other people? Why doesn't he ask for advice? Why doesn't he ask for uh, help? Why isn't there like a super league of other people in the comment in the original i guess comic book before before the movies and everything yeah yeah, yeah. well I mean, wow there's a lot to touch on there uh for yeah. one you know as far as working with our superheroes daredevil has almost exclusively been a, a lone wolf in the comics mm. he's, he's mm -hmm. never been a, 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 a he's worked with the fantastic four and worked with the avengers uh but he's never been a member of any of them and he there's a handful of heroes you know spider-man he teams up with a, a lot uh, Black Widow, he teamed up with for regularly for a few years, professionally and romantically. Uh, the other street level heroes in New York, like Luke Cage and and Iron Fist, uh, similar to in the, in the Netflix series, the Defenders all teamed up. But you know, he's been very much a, a solitary hero. And you know, to bring this into your 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 question of why he takes this all on himself to determine what's right and wrong, that's actually very consistent with Kantian ethics where Kant says that each of us has to determine for ourselves what right and wrong are. You know, when we do that, we'll all come to the same idea that he had, but since he thinks he came to his idea through rational thinking, he assumes mm -hmm. that everyone would come to that same idea if they use their rational thinking the same way. So that's why when he when he explains his categorical imperative and explains it and everything, he's saying this is the natural conclusion that anyone would come to if they thought about it. Mm -hmm. But it's each person's responsibility to think about the think of this for themselves because it violates autonomy to just take someone's el someone else's word for what's right or wrong. Mm. You kind of proved a little bit what I'm saying. So that does mean he's okay. superior to the rest of society. 
Well, not not. I don't think that means you're hmm. superior. That just means that because he might think that everyone else would come to the same conclusion, even though they haven't. Even though they haven't, they haven't yet. Hmm. I mean, okay, other maybe superheroes. That the, maybe that if he thinks he was the first one that did or the best one that did, and then he takes it on himself to act on this. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know? but yes, and then also mm. uh, just sure to say this. I mean, <laughs> if we're talking about the world of superheroes, yep. other superheroes have come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say all of them. Some of them uh, do kill and, you know, mm -hmm. and that's again. So they're part world. of an elite secret society? There actually is an elite secret society. You guys are spoiling Marvel. the secrets again. Come on. No. <laughs> no, so I'm a little, I'm kind of messing with you guys, but also like, it's hard for me not to have my clinicians cap on. I mean, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I mean, what we want is we want a culture, I think in a society where people work together as opposed to having vigilantism. And I mean, right. and I wonder if you thought about this, Mark, but like, um, I know now I kind of wonder if I should ask this, but do you feel yeah, maybe, maybe this is kind of a difficult question, but do you feel like in terms of uh, what we see on the right and some of the, uh, the the stuff that happened with January 6th and the kind of uh, the militantism, the, mil the vigilantism, do you feel like a lot of that in some ways is supported by like texts like superhero texts where the thinking for a lot of these folks is, well, yeah, of course, if the government is corrupt, which they obviously all believe it is and society at whole, as a whole is corrupt, then it's up to us to figure out what's just. I mean, that I would argue that is what January 6th was. So I don't know. It's kind of like it's easy to see the connection there. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, you have a great point. And I remember I did a, a, a Captain America podcast a while ago. And there's that famous speech that Captain America gives during Civil War when he's trying to get Spider-Man over to his side. And Spider-Man asks him, you know, how, how do you, you keep focused on what's right when everyone disagrees with you? And I, I used to be able to do this from from memory, but I you put me on the spot. <laughs> but he says, just you know, when when the when the whole mob's against you, and the public's against you, and the press is against you, and your friends are against you, if you believe you're right, you plant your feet like a tree beside the river of the truth. And if they say move, you say no, you move. Something like that. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, <laughs> And 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 the the person I was doing the podcast with the Captain America fans podcast said, but couldn't anybody use that to justify their actions? Which you you like you just mentioned the January sixth participants, and yeah, that's true, that's true, but that that's why it just that idea of doing what you believe is right is just merely a formal notion if you divorce it from a sound idea of what's right itself. I mean, because, you know, every villain thinks they're doing the right thing. Every comic book villain I'm talking about. And, you know, Dr. Doom always says, you know, I'm trying to take over the world because I can honestly run it better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a great comic called Doom War where he's trying to break into the vibranium vaults in Wakanda mm -hmm. that are protected by the Panther God that gives Black Panther his abilities. And the, he has to face the Panther God, and the Panther God has to assess that his intentions are pure. And so Doom takes all his armor off, stands naked, and says, assess me. <laughs> and the Panther God looks into his soul and says, it's ugly in there, but your intentions are pure. You honestly think you can run the world better than anyone else. Mm. Welcome to the vault. And that's how Doom gets all the vibranium. Mm -hmm. That's cool. But that doesn't mean, but you, know, you can still judge those goals and you know right. Doom's purity of heart as being wrong. Mm. 
So just because someone believes they're right and acts on that, that that's a fairly thin notion without some underlying value of, of whether they are right or not. Oh, can and, I ask you and another? Again, and again, in the Captain America book, I talked about this in terms of integrity, that there's a there's a thin version of integrity that just means your actions are consistent with your beliefs. Mm hmm. But then there's a thicker version of integrity that says those beliefs have to actually have moral validity. Right. And that's where the community comes in. And that's where other people judging whether, you know, one person may think they're right in doing something. But if everyone else disagrees, that's, a, you know, it, it, I, I hate to disagree with Cap, but that's at least a reason to, to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Mm hmm. You know, and you may come to the conclusion, as, as Captain America would, that yes, I am doing the right thing, and this will be shown in the end. But you, you when you deal with Captain America, I mean, just to contrast Captain America and Daredevil, you know, you're dealing with Daredevil, is Captain America has doubts, but, you know, probably fewer doubts than most of us. Daredevil is a, is a man of doubts, because he's got so many internal conflicts and contrasts mm -hmm. that he, he nearly doubts everything. And this is what I've been writing lately about in, in my Psychology Today posts is that, you know, doubting yourself and questioning yourself on occasion is a good thing. But when you do it constantly and you don't have any confidence in your ongoing mission that you're doing the right thing, it's hard to go forward with your life if you're constantly questioning it. Oh, and it's OCD, by the way. And it's OCD, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So it's been called, uh, what would you call it? Just, I want to get the framing right. So it's been called the disorder of self-confidence, where the person is mm. constantly obsessing because they don't believe that they can function in the world. Uh, they can probably take care of themselves. Essentially, that they need everything outlined for them because they don't believe that they could deal with calamity and catastrophes. Yeah. And um, actually, while we're on this topic, it's actually something good to discuss. Uh, why, why is it healthy sometimes to doubt yourself? Now, obviously, not to the level or extent that Daredevil does, but uh, why would you consider that uh, healthy? Well, if you remember in the Thor book, we're just covering everything today. Wait till we get to antitrust. Until we get to antitrust. Then we're way out there. Um but in, in the Thor book, I, I concluded that he's worthy because he never takes his worth for granted, because mm -hmm. he never takes his goodness for granted. And that that having to question yourself, in, in, in one sense, it displays a, a healthy amount of humility, that you, you don't just accept and take for granted that you're always doing the right thing. You Every once in a while, you have to have to look, such as when, you know, everyone is against you and you kind of have to wonder why are all these people wrong? Is it just me, that that, that Principal Skinner meme from The Simpsons mm -hmm. that, you know, everyone else disagrees with me? Is it them or is it me? No, it's them. Of course, mm -hmm. it's them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the questioning yourself on occasion just reflects that that basic sound level of humility that says, let me just make sure I'm doing the right thing here, especially mm -hmm. before doing making a significant choice that's going to affect a lot of other people. Let me make sure I'm doing the right thing here. Yeah. And like I said, like, a, you know, Captain America does this on occasion. He's facing a heavy decision. Am I doing the right thing? And then, of course, what the what makes Captain America different is once he decides it's the right thing, he goes forward with it. And mm -hmm. no one's going to stop him unless they can convince him he's wrong. And if he's convinced he's wrong, he'll stop. Mm -hmm. But it's it's when you you question everything you do because you've lost confidence in your in your in your your basic underlying power of judgment. Mm 
Hmm. And like 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 Leon said, it, it's OCD. It's as I understand it that you you rely on kind of this external scaffolding to structure your decision making because you don't trust yourself to make these these you know uh, immediate judgments. Mm, yeah. Is that is that on, yeah, yeah. on basically well, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and it seems like also with the daredevil, I mean, there's a sense of uh, rugged individualism where he thinks, hey, since you're using Kant as a framework here, it seems like he's the one who has to figure it out on his own as though there's some moral imperative or objective that says, okay, you as a person, as an ethical being, you need to stop relying on people and you need to figure this out on your own. Because again, ultimately, we're all coming to the same conclusions anyway. Uh, why that's, to me at least, uh, why that's kind of troubling is even with OCD, so sometimes people think that when you go to therapy you're becoming this wholly independent person mm. so sometimes when people come in and they say well you know well, i've always independent or dependent no no they want to become wholly independent oh they want yeah. to okay, they I want see, to yeah, yeah. so so because they think that they're completely dependent so like let's say a client will say something like well you know she let's say it's a she because uh i don't know whatever i'm just picking uh so let's say she comes in and she says well you know like i depend on my husband a lot for my decision making right so i can't make a decision without him you know and so uh let's say when they come to therapy they want to they say something like well i want to be able to make decisions on my own so often what that means for people is i want to only make decisions on my own mm. which is not a great way of living right so, right yeah and that's why i wonder when thinking about the daredevil is that what he wanted is it that he wanted he wanted an inner and an internal resolution on his own to say i'm supposed again using the con framework i'm supposed to figure this out on my own because there's a sort of a rational or a natural way to do this. Whereas I would say it's kind of antithetical to OCD therapy because what we're doing as, as clinicians, as whomever is helping somebody with OCD, is we're helping a person, first of all, not only, yes, become independent to some extent, meaning not excessively ask people for advice and for help. Absolutely, right? But it's also to get themselves to see that, okay, we can actually ask for help in a way that's not right. tormenting our relationships and our partners, that we can actually elicit help and then find ways internally to self-soothe after we get it. So the problem with OCD in particular is not that people ask for help. It's just that they do it excessively, that mm -hmm. they want so much reassurance and so much validation. So the point is that they don't really know how to get their needs met in a healthy way. So yeah. I wonder if for the daredevil, he went all the way to the other end. He went from, oh, cool. Like, I don't want to be super dependent on people. So let me just not, not need them at all. Let me just torture myself with these obsessions and these ruminations in order to figure this out on my own. When I would argue that's going back to the system, unless it's completely corrupt you should be able to work within that framework to especially achieve something like justice well but, but he does again you throw so much out leon mm. <laughs> i should be taking notes <laughs> you know he 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 does work in the system i mean this is one thing I, I i don't want to exaggerate and if i have done so i apologize he he does he hasn't thrown out the law and he's just going on on its own that's the punisher that's the punisher who said mm. the justice mm -hmm. system is lost I'm going to go out and I'm going to solve crime by killing all the criminals. That that's obviously the extreme, the extreme end. Daredevil again has a base, basic underlying faith in the law, and he still does as much as he can through the law. But when that runs out, when he's exhausted all the legal remedies, then he goes out as Daredevil and you know bends the law to try to to pick up the little bits of justice that are that are left out by the law. So I, I don't think he's abandoned it so much as he he tries to work within the system as much as he can. But, you know, he realizes when he can't. Mm. And to go back to the Kant thing, you know, it, 
Kant, you know, the, the, the Kantian concept of autonomy that, you know, you, you make your own decisions based on your own values and consistent with your own character. That doesn't mean that you can't accept help or advice or consider other people's points of view. You just never take them verbatim as, you know, as what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So in other words, once you reach moral maturity, obviously children have to listen to what their, their parents and their teachers and everything say, but once you reach moral maturity, um, someday you know you have to even if you accept outside advice or influence you can do that but you have to judge for yourself whether that's right and so at the end it's it's your own decision no. you know because if you're going to accept a belief or, or perform an action that you believe is right you have to have convinced yourself that it's right not just what somebody told you to do mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't listen to anybody else. You just can't listen to them unreflectively. Now, I'm not saying that Matt does that because, you know, again, Matt is the lone wolf. Matt has figured out, as you point out, that he thinks he knows what right or wrong is. But I, but again, he's not utterly confident in that because he questions that. He questions everything. And I mean, you know, one thing that I don't think has been mentioned is this book only covers the first 20, 25, give or take years of, of Daredevil's comic book history. I start from the first issue and I go through the end of, of Frank Miller's second run, the Born Again story. Mm -hmm. And through this entire run, if you read through it, you know, instead of one month at a time, but you just read through it as I did to get ready for this book, most of which I read before, some bits I hadn't. And you kind of get the picture of his whole, you know, early years. Um, it's just so back and forth. Yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm I'm gonna give up being Daredevil. Okay, I have to be Daredevil. Next issue, I have to give up being Daredevil. At the end of that issue, I'm gonna be Daredevil. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell Karen who I am so I can propose to her. I can't tell Karen who I am. I'm gonna tell Foggy who I am. Oh, I can't tell Foggy who I am. I'm gonna do this. No, I can't do that. And it's just yeah. I almost get dizzy reading it. And, and admittedly, this was something going on month to month or every two months in the comics while it was being published that way. And I wrote, read it in rap in, you know, continuous succession, of but course, it yeah. is very much a roller coaster ride. And I think that gives a good picture of, of Matt's mental state, you know, not being able to settle on, okay, this is the path I'm taking. I'm convinced at least for the time being, this is the right path. And I'm going to move forward to the with this until I have a good reason to question it, mm -hmm. not just till the end of the issue when I start questioning it. Mm -hmm. But you know, Alan mentioned earlier how he, he flip flops between you know, should I be Daredevil? Should I not be Daredevil? You know, or the eternal question that many superheroes face: you know, is the real me Matt Murdock, or am I really Daredevil? Which one is the mask? Which one is the real person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even the number of times just in this first 25 years of comics that he fakes his own death to try to solve some complication with his identity or, you know, he's, he's, he just wants to be Daredevil. So he fakes Matt Murdock's death, or he just wants to be Matt Murdock. So he fakes Daredevil's death or tells people it's his brother is Daredevil. It's just, it's, you know, I, it, it's somewhat soap operatic. You know, you know, it's, comics are often compared to soap operas because of the ongoing storylines and interweaving plot threads and everything. And and this is 
add, add, add all these complications to the overwrought dramatic dialogue, especially in the early years when Stan Lee was scripting it. And it it's very soap opera. And, and the fact that Matt is such a passionate person, you know, not only about what he does, and that's part of why he questions it is because he's so passionate about it. He does not want to get this wrong, but maybe he is, maybe he has to question it. He, he's never settled on it, but he is also a very romantic guy he has a lot you know just in that first 25 years he goes through a number of love interests mm -hmm. he's had even more since and and this itself is a conflict with him because of course any woman that he gets involved with he's putting into danger mm -hmm. and so do i break up with her do i stop being a daredevil what do i do and and again to get back to the what i was saying in the beginning he flip-flops between these within one issue you know, uh, I uh, one of my Psych Today blog posts was about how this this oversized sense of responsibility leads him to question what he's doing. You know, am I doing enough good? Maybe I should stop doing this. I'm hurting people. I'm putting people at risk. You know, he's ignoring the good he does, just focusing on the bad. Mm -hmm. But then he saves somebody. And then in the issue, he says, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I should be daredevil. The world needs a daredevil. <laughs> and then the next issue, he's doubting himself again. And it's it's this ongoing cycle that just can't be good for him you know mm. and it's not just the first 25 years this continues on through the through the, the the rest of the series you know i stopped about 86 i think so there's been almost almost 40 years of story since then that have continued in the same vein mm. which which and, and i think for the passage you you read uh you know the one of the most dramatic characters you know because he's always <laughs> like that and you know the, again it's not just like i say when i write about batman he's also a you know a very conflicted character which is horrible for him but it's great for the readers it's great for the fans it's great for the writers who get to write this shakespearean drama and you know but you know when we try to connect with the the the, the person and himself as if he were a real person you know he's not like, you know, I paint Captain America as a moral exemplar, someone you can look up to and try to emulate. Mm -hmm. You know, just like Batman, Daredevil is not somebody you want to, at least with his totality of his personality, not somebody you want to to emulate because he, you know, some of his some of his characteristics are unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's a super cool character. I'm not gonna I mean, when I was younger and I know the Daredevil movie uh, gets a lot of crap, like it wasn't really good. But I was young enough to not be that much of a movie critic, I guess, when yeah. I saw it. So I thought it was cool. You know, I thought Ben Affleck was, you know, not bad. Jennifer Gardner's Electro, all that. Uh, I thought Bullseye was a little uh, sometimes corny or whatever. But I think they did the it, comedy. It was okay. corny. I mean, it was corny, but yeah. in a good way. It didn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it was kind of in between the, the, the 60s Batman series and the Christopher Nolan trilogy. You know, yeah. Nolan's Batman took itself yeah. super seriously, and the '60s Batman was obviously silly. Right. But I, th I thought the 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 movie Daredevil. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of the Daredevil movie, but you know, when I watch it, it's kind of like the 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 first two Fantastic Four movies, in that they're fun. Yeah. I mean, if you if you want to come in as a as a strict you know comic book, you know, this has to be absolutely according to continuity. You know, then or, or it has to be super dramatic or super serious or, you know, it, it's not going to not going to work for you. 
but I'm I'm one of the few Fantastic Four fans online that will actually speak up for the first two movies. And it's just being a lot of fun. And that's what I think the Fantastic Four should be, is, is a lot of fun. Have a lot of heart, a lot of depth, but and, and you know, on the surface, should, it should be a lot of fun. And I thought those movies were. I like the second Fantastic Four, actually, in particular, like when they introduced the Silver Surfer. I mm-hmm. thought that was actually done well enough, you know, as far as, you know, a Marvel movie could go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. I, I thought it would have been cool if they actually kind of continued with like that particular cast. Although I guess it would have made it complicated with Captain America and uh, which yeah. the, yeah, uh, it's just <laughs> the same actor. So yeah, I could see that being an issue. Uh, but then the Fantastic Four movies that came out after that, uh, I I didn't, so so to be fair, I didn't watch them. So sure. I, that's that's not right. Like I should have, I, I should, I guess, watch it and then yeah. judge it. But uh, I don't know. I, I guess it didn't continue for a reason. I, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, what, yeah, did, what did you think? I saw it opening night. Was it was it bad? It not was good? bad. Yeah. It was eh. bad. It, it's eh. one of these things. I, I, I know I wrote about it at the time, and I haven't actually thought about it much. But it, it seemed to be, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not blaming anyone in particular. It could have been the studio. It could have been Marvel. It could have been, you know, Fox was it had the rights at the time. You know, Fox Studios and Marvel never got along. So who knows what backroom dealings were responsible for this. But it's one of these movie treatments that almost seems ashamed of the source material. Mm. Like, like mm. you know, take Ben Grimm, The Thing. You know, one of his famous catchphrases is his clobbering time. Whenever he's ready to, to tackle some big monster or something, it's clobbering time. Mm. That's one of those, you know, when you read that in issue, all the fans' hearts light up. Mm-hmm. you know so oh boy this is this is where the fun starts you know yeah but in the movie in the the the, the last movie uh they they it was it was i can't remember if it was his brother beating him when he was a little boy or their father but but whoever was beating ben said that phrase it's clobbering time and then he mm-hmm. beat him so wow. now this this wonderful catchphrase this beloved catchphrase ends up being you know, a legacy of of, viol- of family violence when he was a young boy. Mm-hmm. Damn. Now, luckily, that was that was forgotten. But I mean, can you imagine if that had been established as canon, and then every time you read that in a comic, you had to think about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it. I mean, I'm not saying that you know that sure. superheroes, no. you know, behavior can never be rooted in childhood trauma. I mean, Bruce Wayne, obviously, being the main example. But Fantastic Four, like I said, it's it's it, it's to me it's properly a big four color bright fantastic adventure with superheroics and occasional tragedy built into it. But you know that was just building in the tragedy to someone who really didn't need it. I mean, the fact that Ben Grimm turns into this rock monster—that's the tragedy. That's that's enough. Yeah. He didn't he didn't this didn't have to be emphasized or or, or have imposed on it childhood trauma also hmm. you know you can have this wonderful happy kid that grows up to be a well-adjusted result uh, adult and he's turned into a rock monster and that changes his whole world that's all you need honestly that is enough yeah and then yeah, I, yeah you're right i'm happy it wasn't established either yeah making that like uh you know related to abuse that would just kind of change the taste you know yeah. especially uh for people who are big comic fans they'd be like oh okay no don't 
take that phrase like we need that to still be around and you know have it be fun of course right and that, uh, I, I think that's in the first five or ten minutes of the movie and i just sat there and thinking oh my god you know where is this gonna go from here i mean i yeah. I, I again i don't want to say anything bad about any of the actors in the film they all did a great job with what they were given and but it was very i mean everyone complains about how the last batman movie was so dark well that it's a batman movie but <laughs> this last fantastic four movie was not the same i mean visually dark yeah and i mean that's just that's not at least at least they did sure. abandon i read that an early idea for dr doom was to have him be an angry blogger <laughs> no uh i don't like that at all that's yeah, I mean, funny it's just, but it's, yeah. Trying to make it, I guess, hip and edgy yeah, yeah. and contemporary, mm -hmm. but 2023 version of Doctor Doom. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I like what if if they do Secret Wars properly. Uh, I think that's gonna be cool. Like, uh, you throw in Doctor Doom, Kang. Maybe maybe they'll take out Kang, make Doctor Doom the main bad guy. Uh, right. bring back a whole bunch of old superheroes. That could be really cool. Um, yeah. one thing I wanted to do though, uh, is uh, I wanted to ask you actually. Um, something I noticed while I was reading the book is, so I've already seen the Netflix, uh, version of daredevil, okay. right. And when I'm reading it, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty, like, this is actually really related to this, not like all the characters, but it's related to that, that show, like, especially the born again concept, right. Oh, Cause yeah. yeah, yeah. He does end up meeting his, uh, mom, uh, who's a nun mm -hmm. and that's revealed there. And then him kind of getting his uh, uh, inspiration back to be uh, Daredevil again. Uh, what what do you think about the Netflix show? And then also the next, uh, the reboot uh, that's kind of coming out. Oh, the Netflix show was amazing. It was yeah. just, it was one of the best comic book adaptations that I think we've had. And the thing that, and, 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 you know, in, to, to, in Leon's spirit to rely on community wisdom, the fact that the, the comic book community I bought into the Netflix series so heavily that, I mean, I know lifelong Daredevil fans who now are bigger fans of the Netflix series than they are of, of, you know, what's going wow. on currently in the comics, just yeah. because, you know, whatever, whatever is happening to Daredevil in the comics may be better or worse, but this show just kind of cemented three, you know, significant, you know, each season was three or four times the length of a movie. So you've got these, you know, three, long extended treatments that were very very loyal to the to the general conception of matt murdoch in the comics again they took some liberties with other characters but matt murdoch kingpin, and yeah. the kingpin are are you know there's there's a reason that charlie cox and vincent d'onofrio are so widely heralded for their performances is not not just their performances but what they had to work with as well mm -hmm. but it's just tremendous and you know, I have friends, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there's a, there was a Save Daredevil movement <laughs> with it, a hashtag. They 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 had um, petitions with hundreds of thousands of signatures that they presented to Marvel after the Netflix series was canceled. They said, bring ah, them right. back, bring yep. the series back, bring Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio back. We want this Daredevil back. <laughs> and when they announced the fourth season, Charlie Cox himself credited the save daredevil movement with helping bring the show back without them they, they may not have come back so he thanked them personally for doing that mm. 
And that's one of that that's one of the arguments I used to to pitch this book to the publisher was there is you know the, a tremendously active and passionate, just like Matt Murdock himself, passionate, you know, fan base for Daredevil. Yep. That that is is you know my my one of the one of the people in the movement is a longtime friend of mine, Christine Hanafalk, who wrote a book about the science of Daredevil. She she is a, a huh. scientist herself. And so she explored the whole idea of, of heightened senses when you lose one and, the, you know, what could explain the radar sense and, you know, animals like bats that have echolocation. Is this possible? And she really goes into all the details of how this might actually work in the real world, as well as exaggerations of it. Like, you know, when a writer says a daredevil's radar sense can pick out color and she says no. It can't be <laughs> picks out surfaces. And when there, you know, it's one thing for Daredevil to hear someone talking through a wall, but to hear them talking on the other side of New York City, you know, is, is ridiculous. So, right, right. so um I, I really recommend that book. And and, mm. and you saw her name. I mentioned her a few times in my book as too. She 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 read an early draft and had some great comments on it. Yeah. And just going back to the philosophy of it. So I remember from Thor, you said, essentially, we have to deal with the fact that it's an existential truth that you would wake up every morning and you would ask yourself, okay, what is it that I have to do to be good today? Right? So it's something that you have to constantly keep revisiting. So would you say it's the same thing with Matt Murdock? Essentially, at some point, he either he has or he has to learn that when it comes to something like obsessions, you have to live with this ambiguity of not really of making decisions and not really knowing whether it is or isn't the right one. Right. He, ha he has to develop, I mean, ironically for a man of faith, he has to develop faith in himself mm -hmm. that, you know, in his mind, God gave him these abilities and as well as his intelligence to do what he believes is right. And he has to have that faith in himself to, again, until it's pointed out that he's doing wrong, that he is generally doing the right thing. Yeah. He has to, to believe in himself enough to do this. Yeah. And I love that so much because that really is what OCD, a part of OCD treatment. So you would help the person through something like what's called a cognitive thought record. You'd help them see, okay, look, based on the data that you have now, you can obviously always ask for advice. But the point is to say that with the data that you have now, the advice isn't going to change. So let's say if we're sitting in session and the person says, okay, here are my options. Let's say we do an exercise where we help them decide what to do. At some point you have to say, okay, well, you have to make the decision. So yes, if I were in your position based on everything that we went through with the data, yeah, I probably would have most likely if not completely i would have made that decision as well and then for some people it feels like it's not enough because there's always the notion of missing data what happens if i don't know enough and then it's like but yeah but you're never going to know enough so let's right. say if you know a year from now you find out something that you wouldn't have known then then you're going to say oh you know thank god i didn't make that decision because here's this other piece of data it's like yeah but that's only with hindsight and so people fall for the hindsight bias you know they say oh if i if oh you know of course that was the wrong answer or of course that was the right answer and so and i love that no of incomplete data and also saying, because here's this person, and this is why I would definitely track OCD onto him. Here's mm. this person who has an inordinate sense of responsibility. So in with OCD, so there are two different versions of personalizing. So one version of personalizing is where you say, let's say I'm a bad person. Uh, you know, this person hates me. Uh, you know, such and such is happening because of me, right? Another version of it is actually taking too much responsibility for something, saying something like the world is, or the weight of the world is on my shoulders. Right. So when you have that version of personalizing, often 
oftentimes that is OCD where the person thinks, oh my God, I'm so responsible for this. And I'm so responsible for knowing all of this. And so when we're treating people with OCD, we essentially help them see that like, yes, you may have these responsibilities, but you're not responsible for fucking knowing everything. You cannot have all of the data. So if you keep pushing off and pushing off whatever decision, sure, maybe you'll get like a little bit of increments of, let's say, addition, uh, additional data, which is great, maybe, right? And then, but the problem is, it's like, when does it become a waste of your time? When does it get to the point where even a little bit of data won't help you? So let's say you made decision A over decision B. So, and let's say, uh, you know, if we're weighing it out, it's probably at this point, let's say, I don't know, I'm just going to assign some sort of quantity to it. it. There's like a 75, 70% chance, let's say that this is the right decision based on everything that we know, right? Is it worth continuously looking for more and more data when you have that kind of number? Some people will say yes. Some people will say, no, I want like 90 or 95%. But honestly, if they want that, they're usually full of shit and they want a hundred percent. So then you're like, wait, what are you really after? So we're asking ourselves now about diminishing returns. So this is where often people struggle, where they think if I have more and more data, that's going to obviously make it more likely that I make the right decision. But the point is, and this is, I don't want to ramble on too much, but the point is that we're getting the person to see that like, you are going to be held to the same level of accountability that let's say I would be held to. Meaning if I were in your position and I were to make this decision, I wouldn't get probably the blowback that you're expecting from other people if you make a mistake. And then also I'm not getting the sense of, uh, let's say, or the retaliation or retribution that you think is coming. So for a lot of these people, and I'm assuming this is the case with Daredevil, he's thinking if I fuck this up or if I make the mistake, people are going to blame me because in some case, you know, I'm the one who has these powers. I'm the one who knows better. I'm in maybe above the law, whatever, however you want to kind of conceptualizes. But the thing that we help people with OCDC is that you're actually not that powerful and you're not that responsible. Yeah. If you make a mistake, nobody's going to die, including you. Right. Get over yourself. Yeah. Get over. Your, yeah. 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 And that's kind of the sense that I get with Daredevil. Honestly, it's like, get over yourself, dude. Whether you're taking one, two, three or four, it's probably give or take the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, a lot of times when he's beating himself up, like over, you know, Heather Glenn's father and her taking their lives and people are, and the funny thing is both Foggy, his best friend Foggy, and, and Ben Yurick, the journalist, ask him, you know, do you feel responsible for this? I'm like, he doesn't need to be asked that. You know he does. <laughs> but, you know, you're just, you know, kind of driving the 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 nail in by asking, you know, do you, do you, don't you feel responsible for this? And he's like, <laughs> of course I do. But, you know, they, they shouldn't be. They should be, if they were true friends, they'd be saying it's not your fault. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, this happened. It's horrible it happened. You know, you're going to think about it, but, you know, you couldn't have prevented this. And the, the, the tough part is when he has, you know, what, what Alan mentioned before about tragic dilemmas where you can't, you know, you have two problems and you can't solve both. And you have to, you know, the, the, the typical thing of having two people you can save, you can only save one, you have to let the other one go. Right. And, you know, he, he's going to save one and then he's going to torture himself over the one he couldn't save. He's going to feel responsible for that, even though he literally could not do both. Yes. It was not Superman. Superman could find a way to do both. Daredevil yep. probably can't. Yep. Yeah. And, and, I, and again, he and, and then he beats himself up over this. You know what you're 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 what you were saying about about getting worrying about getting so much information. Uh, you, you're probably familiar with what economists call satisficing. So uh, I remember that, vaguely, vaguely. Instead of trying that? to maximize, instead of yep. trying to make all your decisions to maximize your well-being. When this would obviously take tremendously more information and deliberation time than you can afford to take, yeah. the, the the preferred um, for many people, especially behavioral economists driving from Herbert Simon's work in the 50s, talk about satisficing. 
you know, you gather information as long as it's worthwhile to gather that information. You get all the information you reasonably can use. You don't worry about getting all the information. And they use the example, like you go out, you know, shopping for a new car. Mm-hmm. You know, a car is a major purchase. So you may mm-hmm. take a day or two to go around to the different dealers, drive different cars and make a decision. You're not going to try out every car that exists. Mm-hmm. You're going to try out a, a decent number of cars so you know what's out there. So you're going to take some time True. buying a house. You can take a week searching properties to buy a house because that's worthwhile to get that information given the size of the purchase. If yeah. you're going out and buying a new toothbrush, you don't go and you know look at all the different toothbrushes and go to different stores to look at what toothbrushes they have. You just go buy a damn toothbrush because it yeah. doesn't matter. You know, If you don't like that one, buy a different one next time. And economists also use this when we talk about dating. You know, you can either keep dating people. You'll say you're dating with the the goal towards settling down with somebody. You can keep dating people, keep dating people, never settle down with somebody because you're always thinking the next person may be even better. The next person may be even better. But, you know, after a while, the satisficing approach says you should just, after you've dated enough people, you should just take stock of who you know and who's available and, decide if it's worth settling down yeah because it's actually inefficient and actually lowers your well-being to keep looking to keep deliberating because then you're not actually you know finishing the the purchase in the case of a house or a car or the the relationship in the case of dating yeah 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 and because there's a lot of catastrophizing involved with ocd again every decision feels like it's Mm -hmm. monumental so the thinking there is okay if i take one over the other even if it's like a little bit different right what am i going to do with all of the regret how do i deal with the fact that i couldn't have chosen otherwise and you know what's so interesting and this is what i love about human beings is that i think people really fail to see this is that the interpretation you know how the buddha says like you know we are our reality to whatever extent this is actually very true in terms of decision making so people often fail to see that you're actually going to find a way to love your decision nine times out of ten so unless you obviously you know are still struggling with ocd if you haven't been able to develop that kind of framework i mean yeah what's going to happen is actually nine times out of ten you're going to hate your decision because you're going to start thinking about all the good parts of what you were missing out on but what normally people do and i often frame this in terms of the experiment of uh there's this famous experiment i don't remember exactly who was uh who, who did it or which uh psychologist did it but it was like a taco and burrito experiment right it's like what do you want you want a taco or burrito they're the fucking same thing right and it's like when the people pick a taco they're like oh my my God, the burrito sucks, right? When they pick the burrito, they're like, ah, the taco isn't even that good. So I think people fail to see that when they make a decision, they will find an exponentially vast amount of reasons why that decision was the right one. The problem I would argue with something like OCD is people not only don't have that capability, but because they have, there's a self-disdain there that they automatically always think that they make the wrong decision. So that interpretation colors their decision-making. But the point is to say that nobody makes decisions that they're comfortable with. We just have the ability to not necessarily dilute ourselves. I don't want to use that term, but we, yeah, talk ourselves into thinking that we made the better decision, like taco and burrito, bro. Like really, you're going to convince yourself that the taco sucks. Like, come on. We do this shit all the time with so many things. Oh, I'm happy. I I chose to do this thing this night over this other thing because of X, Y, and Z reasons. The problem is, yeah, again, going back to OCD is it's the reverse. People tell Mm -hmm. themselves, oh, I should have done that because of those good reasons. Yeah. And uh, I remember you wanted to ask about the antitrust. Yeah, I think at this point, <laughs> yeah, it's twelve forty-one. I think we're. Uh, you sure? 
Yeah, I mean, we could do another episode on it just in case if it does come up. No, it's already because I don't want to like run through it in the whatever it is, four or five minutes. Just yeah. fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, OK, so just curious in terms of um, OK, because I do want to ask. So as we start wrapping up. So in terms of the actual philosophical component, what would you want people, philosophers, lay people, potential students? Right. What would you want them to take away in terms of the actual philosophy of Daredevil, his own thinking about it, uh, the, his frameworks, conceptions of it? What would you want them to know about it? wow that's you know i wrote a book yeah <laughs> i i you know when you're when you're going over before uh i i can't remember which of you listed all the philosophical concepts i go through in the book yeah Al yes. I think Al it was alan yeah and I, I i i was struck by how many different concepts i touched on not not that it's necessarily a good thing but i'm comparing it to the thor book where the Thor book definitely had one theme and, you know, the theme of worthiness mm -hmm. and what it means to feel worthy or be worthy and what you know happens when you don't feel worthy, how you get it back. And I, I remember I touched on a number of topics when I went through that, but there was that one unifying theme through the book and the Daredevil book is different. And so that's why I think when, when you listed all those topics, I don't think any one of them is dominant. Mm. That's definitely true. Yeah. So it's it's uh, that makes the question very hard. You know what what one philosophical idea would I want people to come apart with, come come away with about Daredevil, other than the 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 Whitman phrase, "We all contain multitudes." That that, but it's really the fact that I think he is defined by his conflicts. He is an inter internally tortured person, and that in itself is obviously a counterproductive thing. Right, and so. You know, when I when I talk about Batman, Batman is much more settled except for the not killing thing, because he's because just like Daredevil and Bullseye, Batman's got the Joker. And as long as he lets the Joker live, the Joker's going to keep killing lots and lots of people. And so he's got that conflict. I can't kill him, but I'm trying to save everybody. You know, my my whole mission is about saving Gotham City from from crime. But I'm letting this one person who's responsible for a, for a large percentage of this crime keep doing it. Right. And, you know, that's his main conflict. And, and when people ask me, you know, are you saying Batman should kill a Joker? I'm saying, no, he shouldn't kill a Joker, but he should torture himself over it because that gives him dramatic weight. Mm -hmm. But that's just that one aspect of Batman. The rest of them is pretty centered, uh, is pretty settled. All right. But Daredevil, all of them is internal conflict. Mm. And again, that makes for a massively dramatic character but definitely not someone to be emulated someone to take you know listen the a lesson of what not to do right. is not obsess about all these things that you can't possibly do right you know obsess about all these decisions like leon said that you know he's second guessing them before he does them he's second guessing them after he does them you know he's wondering if she'd be daredevil anymore yes i should no i shouldn't back and forth almost every issue that that's not a way to live you know, you know what i'm actually... again i mean you know what i'm thinking i'm getting because i mean all this discussion about ocd i mean i just have a very elementary idea of ocd before this podcast now now i'm an expert <laughs> but uh <laughs> what 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 i'm what i think i'm seeing is that he actually the fact that he can't just accept that this that being daredevil is the right thing to do and do it you're saying that's a symptom of his of his OCD and the fact that even even when he he 
you know, reaffirms a decision that he's reaffirmed time and time again. And you think eventually he learned that, that this is probably the right, even just, you know, in terms of probability, the right thing to do. He can't accept that. I'm understanding that that could be yeah. a symptom of OCD. Right. Right. And what I what what I also hear you saying is it kind of harkens back to my ethics and law class with uh, Professor Stroop, who was obviously my mentor, where he said, listen, this is why, uh, let's say, uh, deontology as opposed to utilitarianism, right? And even just other ethical schools of thought. It's so important for you to pretty much learn all of them, because at some point, you know, going this concept of containing multitudes, you're going to be struck with these decisions of like, OK, which philosophical school do I apply? And then as you learn about, let's say, you know, the drawbacks of this one as opposed to this one and the drawbacks of this one as opposed to that one in specific specific instances, what you're learning is that you kind of have to know what you're doing. So I, what I hear you saying, or at least what I'm kind of inferring from it, is the point of, uh, or maybe not the point, but a point of Daredevil is he has to understand that there are different ways of making decisions and there are different philosophical schools that can be applied. So I think what you're essentially saying is learn a lot of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I mean, there's there's one part of the book that that uh, I think I think was in Alan's list where he he does talk about you know you you think that based on his focus on rules that he would be a deontologist but he's also very concerned about consequences and and helping people and these come into conflict as every you know just like the the trolley problem in general you know doing doing right and doing good in most cases will hopefully lead to the same decision but they right. can conflict they can conflict mm -hmm. in that you know sometimes doing good means you'll have to do wrong Yep. And that's the case of, you know, he if he if he killed Bullseye, if he did kill Bullseye, it was, you know, setting aside what he knew was the right thing to do to do something that would create the most good. Mm -hmm. But again, the fact that he has to make this decision and constantly question whether he did the right thing is is the ongoing conflict. Wow, I love that. Yeah, and in our ethics and law class, I remember for the midterm, we had to apply, like we took one decision and we had to apply the two different schools of thought, you know, in this case, obviously deontology and utilitarianism, and you had to make an argument for which one you thought was the right one to apply to that decision. And again, this is why philosophy is so important, man, because we're always making these ethical decisions. And I would argue for the most part, we're probably doing them more implicitly because we're basing it on, let's say, rules or re sure. religious beliefs probably that we've brought, brought, been brought up with. But the point is to say that the study of ethics gives you a sense of freedom that you probably wouldn't have otherwise right right yeah that's, that's what i say i think i think in the, the the lead up to my captain america book i say you know that you know when we're teaching ethics like your professor did we're not teaching you what to think we're teaching you how to think about what you think and if you come if you come out of an ethics class with a firmer belief in the ethics you came in with great mm. but you you now know you know more about what those ethics mean yeah. If you come out with a different sets of ethics, that's great too. But you know, even if you come, if you if you're a diehard utilitarian and you come into ethics class and you come out, you know, wow, this is even better than I thought. Fantastic. Yeah. But you 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 were exposed to a lot of things that could either lead you to support your pre-existing beliefs or question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in either way, you're doing it with more information. Yeah, I love that. All right, as we start to wrap up, Alan, final questions for Mark before we go. Well, yeah, Mark, uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Uh, the book should be available at most online booksellers, either as an ebook or as a printed book. Uh, my website is www.profmdwhite.com. And that Prof MD White is also my handle on the various social media platforms. 
I love it, Mark. Thank you again, man. This was epic. I really, I, I love yeah. all of these philosophical conversations, especially the fact that we can apply them to pop culture. Because oftentimes people think like, what do I need to take an ethics class for? Like, didn't my parents already teach me what was moral? Exactly, exactly. And that was the brilliance of William. <laughs> you know, we all know William Irwin. That's the brilliance of the series that he came up with with the philosophy of pop culture. It's, yeah. you know, introducing basic philosophical ideas to the pop culture that people love. So yeah. I have to thank him because without him, I wouldn't be doing this now. Oh, absolutely. I love that. All right, man. Three-time guests. We'll have you back at sometime soon. So either we'll cover antitrust or whatever next Marvel book you're doing. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Man. We'll talk to you next Take time. Care. Take care. All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.